0: The title given to these sessions, and to tell you the truth, when I said yes to doing them, I had no idea there'd be so many of them. However, it's nice to put on the old teaching harness once again. But the title that I've been given, Living Biblically in a Secular World, is it, or Age? World is a little bit misleading. Because what it suggests is that there is some kind of tension, or even antagonism, between the Bible and the secular world. So let me begin by saying that in fact, rightly understood, not only is there no antagonism between the Bible and the secular world, the Bible has given birth to a world that is properly understood as secular. We talk about the Bible as a sacred text and there's truth in that but it's at least as true to say that the Bible is also a very secular text. If you take the incarnation of God when the Word is made flesh what is the incarnation if it's not the secularisation of God? The Bible, in all kinds of ways, desacralizes the the pagan world. In the pagan world, for instance, gods were attached to places. And places, therefore, were thought to have a, a particular kind of sacral character because of the God whose place this was. But you see, ancient Israel meets God in the desert... And at first they think that this God is only a desert God. And when they enter the promised land, which is no longer the desert, but the green land, agricultural country, they think they should leave the desert God and start worshipping the God of the farming country, the agricultural gods, the Ba'az, as they're called in the Scripture. But what the Bible comes to see then is, no, this God is not tied to the desert or to the agricultural country, this God is everywhere. So there's one example of the way the Bible secularises what was a deeply sacralised world. Similarly, with those who held power, political power, I mean the kings. The pharaoh of Egypt was regarded as a god, as divine. And what does the Bible do? The Bible cuts all of those figures down to sides. They're no longer gods, because there is only one God, who reigns over all. There's another example of the way the Bible desacralises the world, and enables us to discover how the world is truly secular. Now it's different to say that the world is truly secular from caving into secularist ideology. I'm not talking about that. But the Bible is about a God who enters this world, a secular God, unlike the gods of paganism. A God who, as it were, has mud on his boots. So let's then see what kind of mud this is. To answer that question, you've got to ask Where does the Bible begin, in fact? Now, here's the Bible, my poor old battered black Bible that's been belting around the world with me for decades. I open the Bible, and what do I find? The creation story in the beginning. Just by the way, they're very interesting words. In fact, in Hebrew, it's one word, Bereshith, in the beginning. Not of some mythic time, once upon a time. The Bible never starts like that, once upon a time. In the beginning of this time. In other words, the Bible rubs your nose in history. You're not allowed out of history, the soil of human history, into some mythic or fantasized world. The Bible rubs your nose in the truth, the facts of this world, in the beginning of this time, history. It's there that you have to find the real God if you're going to find God at all. Don't try and escape into some fantastic world, some phantasmagoric, mythic world. You'll never find the real God. You'll only find the real God in real human history is what the Bible says although when I open the Bible on the first page I see the creation story or one of the two creation stories it's intriguing isn't it that the Bible begins with two quite different creation stories it doesn't make any attempt to combine them or to stitch them together it simply puts them side by side Genesis chapter 1 Genesis chapter 2 they are quite different, accounts of the same event, the creation. You find the same thing at the start of the New Testament, where we have four Gospels. Now, why didn't they just take the best bits of the four Gospels and stitch them together? It would have been much simpler, wouldn't it? Terribly confusing, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So why do we have two creation accounts at the start of the Old Testament, and four accounts of the Jesus phenomenon at the start of the New Testament. The answer is the Bible is profoundly anti-totalitarian. It's a crucial point. What do I mean by totalitarian? The Bible utterly resists the claim that there is only one right interpretation of the great fact and mystery of creation And there is certainly no one right interpretation of the overwhelming fact and mystery of the Word made flesh. There are only different angles on reality. That's what I mean when I say the Bible at its heart is is powerfully anti-totalitarian. And that's one of the reasons why the totalitarian regimes of human history... Up to this very day. What's the first thing they do when they seize power? They ban or they burn the Bible. Because they know the power of this text in a way that even we believers perhaps do not. These words create worlds. You see, in the beginning, God creates. But how does God create? How does God bring light out of darkness? Something out of nothing. Order out of chaos. God speaks. God said, light, and there was light. That's power. So words create worlds, and the totalitarian regimes know it. That's why they ban or burn the book. The fact that the Bible begins with the book, with the creation... Genesis 1.1 doesn't mean that that's really where the Bible begins. So as we begin our journey of formation, let's look at the question, where does the Bible in fact begin? And the answer, unquestionably, is that the Bible begins with the fact of the Exodus. That's where it all begins. And that's where we begin this journey. Now I'm talking about an historical event. Again, not in some mythic world. We're talking about an event that happened in human history. Now it's hard to know exactly what that event was. But whatever it was, we know that it was the liberation of slaves against all the odds. The way the the Bible tells the story doesn't give us just the facts, the whole facts and nothing but the facts. The Bible doesn't do that. Now some people say, well it's not true. Uh, Because it doesn't give us the scientific facts of how creation happened, it's not true. But the Bible moves at another level. The Bible isn't interested just in the facts, what happened. It's interested in what the facts mean. It's a different point. So not just the facts But what the facts mean, and and what the Bible would insist is that unless you come to that point of what the facts mean, you'll never understand the truth. See, if you take the death of Jesus, there was the fact. Jesus died on a cross. He was brutally executed. Everyone saw it. The question wasn't what what happened. They They all knew what happened. The question was, what does it mean? We know that the creation has happened, but what did the creation mean? So the question of meaning is what drives the Scripture. Now, if we look at the Exodus, where the Bible begins, what can we say? We know that there were slaves working in Egypt. Every imperial power needs its slave class. It was true in the ancient world, it's no less true now. Slavery takes different forms, but it's always the same thing. This group of slaves, not really a people, a loose-knit sort of mob, they are eventually allowed to go into the desert to worship their god by an initially very resistant pharaoh, you know the story. Off they go, the children of Israel. Pharaoh then changes his mind and says, I need the slaves back. Go and get them. The imperial economy of Egypt needs them. So Pharaoh the escapees, and the escapees find themselves caught between the devil and the deep Red Sea. They're gone. This God, whom they thought would set them free, has in fact led them into a trap. And then, against all the odds, the walls of water open, they pass through into freedom, and Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the sea. That's the story as it's told. It might have been, in fact, that Pharaoh and his army got bogged in a sea of reeds. Who knows? The Bible, though, tells the story in a way that is very grand because what it it is laying before us is what that event meant. It wasn't just the way it seemed to be. The truth of that event was that God intervened to do the impossible, and the God of the Bible, the only thing God is good at is the impossible. God had intervened to do the impossible and set those slaves free. Now, that's where the Bible begins. In the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments. Now, you think it's tough being Catholic. 613 is what the rabbis compute. But, if you said to the rabbi, Rabbi, 613 is too many I am a simple man. How many commandments are there really? And if you pressed him hard enough, he would say, there are ten. The 613 can be boiled down into ten. And he wouldn't call them commandments, as we do. He would call them the ten words. The ten devarim. And why would he call them the ten words? Because in the beginning, how did God create bringing light out of darkness? God used a word, light. And these ten words spoken by God and communicated through Moses have the same effect. This time, not just bringing light, light out of darkness bringing slaves out of Egypt. Now this is where you see that the Bible interprets us before ever we interpret the Bible. Now this is a critical point if you want to understand what it means to be or to live biblically. I don't know how many times I have held up the Bible like this, waved it like that, and said to people like you, students of mine, this is your life. Now unless you understand that, you'll never reach the point of living biblically. Because the Bible will always be once upon a time. And it's not. It may tell stories that reach back into time but they are stories of your life. So if the Bible begins with a story of slaves set free against all the odds by a God who specialises in the impossible, what's it saying about us? How is the Bible interpreting us? The Bible is saying that you are, and I am in some way, a slave. Now if you don't think you're a slave, go and read Barbara Cartland. Nothing wrong with Barbara, but if the Bible is only a powerful text for those who accept the strange interpretation that it makes of the human being, that all of us are in some ways in Egypt, subject to Pharaoh who says, more bricks, no straw. So the question at the head of scripture is, how are you a slave? good question in Lent how are you in Egypt what is your Egypt what is your Pharaoh some of them are obvious but sometimes Pharaoh is not obvious Pharaoh can dress up in all kinds of ways and look like something else so there, there is the question the Bible interpreting us saying that you are a slave and you are a slave who inhabits a world where the logic of Pharaoh seems to rule. And what is the logic of Pharaoh? Once a slave, always a slave. Dante inscribes over the gateway to hell in his great poem, The Divine Comedy, the words Abandon hope all you who enter here. Why? Because once you're a slave, always a slave. In the ancient world, that was the understanding of why God had created the human being. Why had God created the human being? Because God was like a great king who had a great garden. Gardens take a lot of hard, dirty work, and kings don't do that sort of work. What do kings have? They have slaves who do all the hard, dirty work. And that's why God created us. It made perfect sense in the ancient world. So human being, what are you? You're a slave. Get used to it. Cut your losses. Make the best of a very bad show. You're a slave. Abandon hope, all you who enter here, so that Pharaoh is always the Lord of hopelessness. In the Bible, when God creates the human being, we're led by the nose into what seems to be the conventional understanding of who God is and why God created us and who we are for God. We're told God creates the human being and puts the human being in the garden to till it and to keep it. Genesis 2.15 So what's your job? Dirty work. Till and keep the garden. This God then seems just like all the other gods. Four verses later, verse 19, something extraordinary happens and yet it looks so, so simple. We're told God is creating, doing animals today, big day, and God has just created an animal and he says to the human being come here you think you're a slave I've got news for you come here human being Adam earth creature see that animal down there give it a name and Adam looks at this wondrous creature and says dog God says excellent choice see what's happening Here the human being is using a word again look, it's a word to order the chaos because that's what naming does it orders the chaos and that's what creation is that's what God did in the beginning with a word so what is the human being now? Not a slave but someone called by God into the circle of God's own ongoing creativity to order the chaos, bring light out of darkness, fullness out of emptiness, slaves out of Egypt, and even a dead man from a tomb. That's the logic, not of Pharaoh, but of God. And those two logics are mortally Opposed from the first page of scripture to the last. Human being, it doesn't matter what convention says, how often Pharaoh tells you you are a slave, that's a lie. The truth, in fact, is that you are a creature, you're not God, but you are a creature possessed of a unique and magnificent dignity that nothing and no one ultimately can take away because it's conferred by God. This was the whole key to the immense profusion of the pontificate of John Paul II. He wrote so much, he said so much, he did so much. But at the heart of it all, through 26 years, there was his grand simplicity drawn from the first page of Scripture. He was dazzled by the vision of human dignity that he drew from the biblical source. And this was a man who because of communism and fascism had seen the opposite. Triumphs of Pharaoh, turning human, promising freedom, they always do these ideologies, totalitarian ideologies, they always promise you freedom and deliver slavery. And you've only got to look at the evidence of the 20th century to see what I mean. Having seen all of that in all its horror and and its brutality, demonic brutality, John Paul II, like many others, but he was a classic, dazzled by the vision of human dignity, created in the image and likeness of God, not a slave, but a co-creator, called by God to share God's work. So the God who is Logos is also and more especially logos. God wants to enter into partnership with us. I mean, it's an incredible judgment on God's part. And it's cost him a lot. But God wants to enter into an ongoing creative partnership with the human being. Now, these early pages of Scripture are the key to everything else that follows, believe me. Not a slave, not God, but a creature who is God like. God-like. That's the truth of who we are. And if you want to live biblically in a secular world that reduces the human being, sees one sliver of the truth and says that's all there is. If you want to live biblically in a secular world then you have to see more and more of the dazzling truth of the human being as God has in fact created us. Come back to my eyeballing of the rabbi. I've got the rabbi down to ten commandments. That's a lot better than 613. But if I press the rabbi in the right way, I say, Rabbi, ten is too many. I can't cope with ten. How many commandments are there, rabbi? Eventually he would say to you, there is only one and the other 612 in fact are elaborations applications or extrapolations there is only one commandment one word spoken by God and here I take you to the heart of biblical religion as we begin our journey of formation no extra charge The way in which this one and only commandment is formulated in the Bible is very carefully done. And we've heard it just recently in the liturgy. It occurs a number of times in the Old Testament, but always with the same formulation. Let's look at it. It starts off, I am the Lord your God. Sound familiar? Mm Mm-hmm. That's the first of three elements. I am the Lord your God. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, that's obvious, that's sort of trite. Think again. The very fact that God can be addressed as an I is not to be taken for granted. The God who is a person to whom we can speak and who can speak to us. A lot of religions don't see God like that. Biblical religion does, but many other religions do not. So don't just sit there and take for granted that God is an I. That is extraordinary. I am the Lord. I mean, I'm in charge. I'm the Lord, your God. And the extraordinary word there is your. In other words, it presumes relationship between the God who is I and us. I am the Lord, your God. Now, just just think for a moment. This God, this I, is so unimaginably vast and mysterious that no human word or thought or imagining can possibly capture or even begin to capture the God whom the whole vast universe, all the thousands or is it millions of galaxies, can contain. This God chooses to communicate with us. I mean, just consider for a moment, stand back from it, defamiliarise yourself, and, and stand back from it and sense the disproportion between God and us and yet here is this God I am the Lord your God I want to communicate with you it's shockingly disproportionate but there's the truth of the God who is dialogos the dialogue God who wants to be our partner wants us to join with him in the ongoing work of creation that's the first element here comes the second. This relation, We all like relationships. They're beautiful things. Um, but the, thing, the real question, the practical question is, what does this relationship do for us? What's it mean? Well, that's what the second element answers. Here it comes. I am the Lord your God. Now, I bet some of you are sitting back there thinking, no other gods before me. I won't call for a show of hands but Catholics often go from the first to the third of the three elements and leave out the crucial second. This puzzled me for years until someone, it was a bishop, said to me that's because in the old catechism that people of my age will remember we only had the first and the third element, I am the Lord your God no strange gods before me. Now you all know that, I can see heads nodding all over the cathedral. The crucial second element the Protestants always get this because they didn't have the catechism (laughs) I am the Lord your God who brought you forth from the land of Egypt the house of slavery. Now this is crucial. If you leave out this vital second element The risk you run is of turning God into a God who simply blesses the status quo. And how many of the false gods do that? They all do it. Status quo. Like the false prophets running around saying shalom, 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 everything is fine, you've got nothing to worry about. Just leave things as they are. But if if you... immerse yourself in this vital second element who brought you forth from the land of Egypt, you'll see that the real God is a God who puts a bomb under the status quo over which Pharaoh always presides, wearing the double crown of upper and lower Egypt. Pharaoh in all his glory presiding over the status quo that leads to death that Egypt but here it is the God who, who, who relates to us in order to set us free now again secular discourse talks almost obsessively about freedom personal freedom, individual freedom it's one of the great cultural obsessions of a culture like ours But you see, a lot of those things that promise freedom, like Pharaoh, lead to the opposite. They end up as new kinds of slavery. So that the haunting and persistent question in our heart is, where am I going to find true freedom? And that's again where the Bible would say, it is only this God, the real God, not the false gods who do the opposite, but the real God who can lead you forth from the land of Egypt whatever your Egypt may be. There is no Egypt from which you cannot come forth. Now we have a tendency to start drawing lines that become lines of hopelessness, to say this is not possible or that is not possible. Slaves cannot come forth from Egypt. Babies cannot come forth from barren wombs. Dead men cannot come forth from a tomb. It's all the same stuff. We say it can't happen. or there's something in my life that cannot happen. There's something in the life of my family that cannot happen. There's something in the life of the church that cannot happen. There's something in the world that cannot happen. And a quiet hopelessness settles upon us even a kind of despair, despite our strange smiles. And Pharaoh rules okay there is no, according to scripture the logic of God there is no Egypt from which you cannot come forth the only question is how there is no darkness from which light cannot be born, no barren womb from which the baby cannot come forth, there is no tomb from which dead men may walk that's, what the script, that's all secular stuff too, there's nothing spookily religious about this It's all very, very secular. And it all happens in this world. Not some phantasmagoric New Age world, but in history, is what the Scripture insists. What the Bible does then, just by the way, the third element, no other gods, No other gods. I know you have a penchant for those other gods because you're a human being. I can read it on your faces and sense it in my own heart. Now, why does this God say no other gods? It's not because God is insecure or somehow jealous, as we might be. No other gods. Who's God worried about? Not us. Not himself, but us no other gods my co-creators because the other gods either never let you out of Egypt or they take you back to Egypt so God's not worried about himself God's worried about us and that's why the cry goes forth no other gods for your own sake but you see we have have a a penchant to shoot ourselves in the foot, there's a suicide in each of us where we see the seductive false gods they are are always seductive they kind of sneak up on you it's like the serpent in the story of the fall great story, this is your life the serpent is very urbane just slithers up and says to Eve did God say doesn't begin with a big speech just a, a very polite question did God say that you should not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden so, so evil slithers dresses itself up, evil the voice of evil can be quite a but evil it remains the Bible then stands On a mountaintop. This is where it begins. And the mountaintop is the mountaintop of Exodus, coming forth from Egypt. And from that vantage point of the Exodus, the Bible looks back to the moment of the creation and tells the story of creation as a kind of Exodus. Look at the way the story happens in the scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, like all the other gods. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So dark, empty, chaotic. These are the waters of chaos, the deep. So that's where the story starts, that which is dark, empty, chaotic chaotic. That's Egypt. That's the barren womb. That's the tomb. Dark, empty, chaotic. And then we hear the first sound of the scripture. The spirit, really better translated as the breath, ruach in Hebrew. It just means the breath. The breath of God was moving through the darkness over the waters of chaos. So what is the first sound of the Bible? You ready? Heavy breathing. The question is, what does it mean in the darkness? What is this breathing? The answer comes immediately. Because what are we told? God said light. What happens? The divine breath hits the divine vocal cords. How am I producing the miracle of speech right here, right now? My breath is Hitting my vocal cords to produce language. Best thing the human being has ever done. Now, God, we are told, the divine breath in the darkness (sighs) hits the divine vocal cords. And what do we hear? Vaihi or let there be light. Light. It's got the force of one word. And there was light. One of the fascinating things about that story is that we're told there was light. But we don't get the sources of physical light for another three days. We don't get the sun and the moon and the stars for days. So how come there's light if there's no sun and moon and stars? Has the Bible made one of its mistakes? I don't think so. What is the source of the true light that will never die? Your word is a lamp for my steps and a light for my path. There is a source of light that precedes the sources of physical light and even after the sun, moon and stars vanish as the New Testament says they will then coming on the clouds we will see the Son of Man who is the light. Your Word. He is the Word made flesh. He is the light. The Word of God is the true light. We don't need yet the sources of physical light because we have the word of God which brings light out of every darkness. So what looks to be a mistake of the primitives who just got it wrong is in fact a superb and superbly simple piece of theologizing. Theologising about the word of God and what the word of God is and does. The Bible not only stands on the vantage point of the exodus, the liberation of slaves, and looks back to the beginning and tells the story of creation as if it were a kind of exodus where light comes out of darkness, fullness comes out of emptiness, and order comes out of chaos. That's an exodus in the beginning. But the Bible looks forward as well. To the very end when history will, when time will come to an end and the creation will be complete in that sense. But the New Testament takes the exodus and makes it the key for interpreting the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the Bible looks two ways, it looks back to the beginning and forward to the end. But the key in all of this is the liberation of slaves. Without that, you simply don't have a Bible. In that sense, what the Bible represents, and this is something we will explore further in other sessions, is hope. Now, it's about the one thing the human being can't live without. It's amazing what we can do without But the one thing the human being cannot live without is hope. You kill hope and you kill the human being slowly or quickly. Take your pick. And again I come back to totalitarian regimes. They absolutely depend upon the death of hope in their people. Abandon hope, all you who enter here. And if a secular world needs anything, it is a genuine hope. Not these false cosmetic hopes that vanish like the mist. But a real hope in this time, this history, this world, my life. Not some mirage, but real hope. But the Bible speaks of a hope that is born always and only out of what seems to be hopelessness. The Bible rubs your nose in what seems to be hopelessness. Therefore, the prime resource that we bring to a reading of the Scripture is our experience of what seems to be hopelessness. So again, I ask the question, and it's a very Lenten question. What is your experience of hopelessness? Where in your life, your family, the church, the world, do things seem to you to be hopeless? If you leave that behind when you come to the Scripture, you will be exactly like those who say, Well, I'm not a slave. I don't need to be set free not for me, the Bible will have nothing to say to you but what the Bible does is it takes you down into the dark, empty and chaos it takes you down into what WBH, the Irish poet, called the foul rag and bone shop of the heart my darkness, my emptiness, my chaos, into the darkness, the emptiness and the chaos of the world, this can sound bleak but it's not The darkness, emptiness and chaos of the the church, the world, the whole lot. Why only there in order to discover the light? Because the only place you'll ever discover true light is at the heart of darkness. If you don't go down, you won't find anything. A lot of people never find God, the real God, because they look in the wrong place. They spend most of their life's energy either denying or running away from the darkness, emptiness and chaos. Well, if you do that, don't expect to ever find the real God. You'll end up with some tinpot God who'll take you back to Egypt. Francis of Assisi, great saint, none of us would deny it. The greatness of Francis of Assisi is not preaching to the birds, you know, my dear birds. Um, The greatness of Francis is when he can kiss the leper. How is it possible that he could kiss a leper? You might catch it the answer is because he's embraced or kissed the leper in himself, he's gone down 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 into his own disease and there he's encountered the embrace of God God has embraced and kissed Francis the leper and that experience enables the saint to go and do the same that's living biblically in a secular world that won't touch the leper runs away never, you won't touch Won't kiss the leper another name that comes to my mind and here I move to conclude for this evening is the, the Jewish writer Eli Wiesel Eli Wiesel had a less than privileged upbringing because he spent much of his early life, his young life in Auschwitz He was taken to the death camp with his family and he was the only member of his family to survive. And when he walked out of Auschwitz, he he made a vow to himself, even though he later became a a distinguished writer. He said, I will never speak or write of what I have seen in the death camp. Why? Because he said it would so trivialise the horror that it would be a kind of obscenity. Eventually, Elie Wiesel was persuaded by his friends to take up the pen and to write the story of his time in Auschwitz. It's a little book, it's only about 116 pages, but it's an epic and exhausting read. He wrote it in French, and it's called simply La Nuit, Night, and it's told in such a spare and laconic style that only gives it more power. He doesn't strive for effect. It's very restrained, but all the more powerful because of that. What is he doing? Elie Wiesel, de Jew. Obeys the deepest impulses of Scripture by taking up his pen and telling the story. A story of what seemed to be utter, utter hopelessness. And he tells the story of the old rabbi when they arrive at Auschwitz, it was night. And they get off the train and they see a big fire in the distance. And they wonder, what, is, well, what are these flames? And he says, we moved closer to the flames and as we came closer, we realised what was happening. Into the fire pit there were being thrown babies. And Wiesel tells the story of standing there in horror and disbelief and next to him there was an old rabbi with a big beard and a big fur hat. And he says that the rabbi with empty eyes simply looked looked to heaven and said, it is the end. God has abandoned us. And all the evidence suggested that the truth was with the rabbi. This was hopeless. This was the final triumph of Pharaoh. And that's what Auschwitz seemed to embody. Utter, utter hopelessness. By the end of this book, there is no They Lived Happily Ever After. But what has happened is Wiesel has rummaged through the ash heaps of Auschwitz in the search for an ember of hope, at the end of the book there's just the slightest glimmer that there might be a future. For the man who had said earlier in his life it is no longer possible to speak to God or of God. That's the kind of situation that the Bible draws you into. What seems to be hopeless but there you discover the tiniest ember among the ashes And eventually, as the scripture unfolds, the ember becomes a fire and becomes a great blaze that embraces the whole cosmos. That's the truth that the Bible speaks. The last thing I say is this. The Bible is born out of two catastrophes. The first of them was the Babylonian exile that happened in 587 BC but don't think it's once upon a time when they were taken into exile by the Babylonians the whole show seemed to have collapsed God seemed to have abandoned us where was God now? What happened then by the streams of Babylon is not that they just hung up their harps and wept, but like Visa, they began to work through their sacred texts and they got out their pens and they began to reorganise the bits and pieces retell the stories and out of that experience of catastrophe there came this great hymn of hope and that became the Old Testament. The New Testament obeys the same rhythm It was born out of the catastrophe of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem that came in 70 AD. Rome, like the US in Vietnam, had bogged down in guerrilla warfare. And for years, they couldn't take the Holy City. When they did, their vengeance was in proportion to the embarrassment that they had suffered. And the destruction in 70 was just demonic in its totality. Out of that catastrophe, the New Testament took shape as Christianity had to organise itself somehow, picking up the bits and pieces beyond the catastrophe. Judaism did the same thing, what was left of it. Both Old and New Testament then born of a catastrophe and asking the question, have we got a future? Is there any hope? Deeply secular questions. And coming up with not just the bleak glimmer of an answer, but an absolutely jubilant proclamation of a hope born always and only out of what seems to be hopelessness. The great journey, and we will hear more of the journey as we move on, the great journey of Scripture is therefore a journey out of the world of what seems to be the world of illusion, into the world of what is, into the world of truth. The world of illusion will always obey the logic of Pharaoh. The world of truth will always obey the logic of God. Pharaoh will make you slaves. God will set you free. There we begin to understand what it means to live biblically in a secular world. That's enough from me tonight, but we have only just begun, I warn you. There is a grand journey that lies ahead, but tonight we have set the ground. Thank you very much.